0: Hello Bridgetown Podcast watchers and listeners. I'm Tyler Staton, the lead pastor of Bridgetown Church, and I would love to invite you to consider giving to our Christmas giving campaign this Advent season. It will extend all the way through year end, and we are raising funds toward three particular initiatives, Justice Allies, Justice Actions, and Bridgetown Kids. Every cent given will go to those three initiatives. You can find out much more and give at bridgetown.church slash give.
1: In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had had been told to them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. This is the word of the Lord.
0: You may be seated. Cinderella begins with Once Upon a Time. Luke's Gospel begins with Caesar Augustus, Quirinius, and a Roman census. And that's important because it signals the kind of story that you're reading. Once Upon a Time tells you that you're reading a fable, the story is fiction but it's a certain kind of fiction, a valuable kind of fiction with a moral within it that's worth remembering and even living. And a lot of people would prefer to read the Jesus story that way. Because if this is a fable, then it allows me to thread the needle between the very good meaningful moral of this story that I might even be compelled to live while also leaving behind the bits that strike me as impractical or unlikely. But Luke slams that door in our faces. Caesar Augustus, Quirinius and a Roman census that reads a whole lot less like a fable and a whole lot more like a news report It grounds this story in history. This actually happened And here's when it happened and where it happened and to whom it happened You see a news report it just delivers information But a fable encourages you to some action because of this or in light of this story Here's what you should go and do But a news report is just information. What you do with that information is completely up to you. It's not about what you should go and do, it's about what has been done. There was a traffic accident on I-84. There's a power outage in Montevilla. The Blazers lost a heartbreaker again last night. That's news, it's reporting on something that's been done. Something has happened, definitively happened, and I'm just letting you know what you do with that information is your choice. God here on earth, in the form of Jesus, either makes this person, Jesus, laughable, or it is the wonder that makes him Lord. You get to decide. Summarizing the whole miraculous story, the Apostle John went with the simple phrase, God is love. That phrase, which was originally provocative, has become today so vanilla that it's generally universally accepted. We can all agree that there is uh, some great uh, divine quality to this thing we call love. That is, so long as love remains an abstract concept that we can observe from a distance. But the claim that we celebrate on Christmas Eve is that love that is abstract and distant is not love at all. Love that is not grounded in person and place and relationship is something less than love. The claim is that love took on a name. And the world's great religions, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, they all trace their roots back to the very same place, the biblical book of Genesis and to a God personal enough to make promises to people. The dividing point for Christianity from the other two is that love became personal enough to live among us. Love took on a body and a personality and a name. Jesus made the God of love personal, and that is the great scandal that sets Christianity apart. The provocative claim that we have gathered around tonight is this one, that God has undressed himself of all of his transcendent glory. He has stripped away every last one of his powers except for one, the power to love and to be loved, which is, to borrow from Frederick Buechner, of all powers, the most powerful, because it is only love that can conquer the human heart. And that is a wonder that some fall on their knees before And it's a scandal that others shake their heads at and dismiss. And it always has been. God is love. But the world didn't recognize him. John said that too. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. You see, if we are to see the light, we first must name and recognize darkness. I've got these two categories of problems in my life, problems outside of me and problems inside of me. The problems outside of me tend to go by names like my checking account, my uptight neighbor, and the looming, quite complicated trip to the DMV that I keep putting off. The problems inside of me go by names like ego, anger, a lack of empathy, and preoccupation with my own comfort. The way I deal with problems outside of me is mostly by attempts at blame and control. The way I deal with the problems inside of me is to take one aspect of my life magnified and then ask it to hold the weight of my importance. I take my career or my appearance or my social life or whatever and it becomes a way for me to affirm my own importance. A way for me to ask you to affirm my fragile sense of importance. A way for me to become lovable in my own eyes the way that I already am in God's. It is an attempt to restore my deepest sense of value without dealing with the God who gave it to me in the first place. And everyone's got these two sets of problems, outside and inside problems. And sin is the name the Bible gives to those problems. And sure, that word has been abused by some and it may reek with emotional baggage to you. And if that's the case, feel free to change out the vocabulary, just do not ignore the diagnosis. Because properly understood, sin is not an accusation or a condemnation, it's just an honest diagnosis. It's a trip to the doctor where you describe your symptoms and discover there's a name for this disease. And the trouble with pretending that I'm healthy when I'm not is that I miss out on healing. God came as love because he came not to bring judgment but to bear it, not to impose order but to take disorder on himself, not to diagnose, not yet, but to heal. Love, and love so strong that you didn't earn it and can never lose it, that's the only cure. The trouble with sin isn't that God's got a tight moral grid and that coloring within the lines is how you prove you're on his side. It's that sin gets in the way of love. It holds us back from giving love, from receiving love, from recognizing love personified in Jesus, the one they called Emmanuel. God is love. That's not vanilla. It's a scandalous statement with both personal and social implications. Let's start with the social. God was born to us in the form of an infant named Jesus. The most important thing that has ever happened, happened. And hardly anybody noticed. The priests just kept about their business, the markets kept on running, Rome kept taking over the world one nation at a time. He came far too quietly and humbly for people to notice in all of their frenzy and self-importance. There was this one moment, though, when an angelic choir broke the silence and let a few in on the secret, and those who scored tickets to the front row of that performance were a motley crew, to put it politely. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, "'Do not be afraid.'" I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Who did heaven select to take in the spectacle, to let in on the secret of secrets? A few shepherds, illiterate hourly workers Shepherds had such a bad reputation that they were widely considered spiritually contaminated and unclean. Many scholars argue that the second you chose the profession of a shepherd, you were barred from entrance to the temple for the rest of your life. It's hard to think of a more objectively unproven and unqualified group of people that God could have chosen to push all of his chips in on. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. News that was first heard eloquently through the angelic chorus of angels is not going to come now through the booming voice of a high priest, but instead through the rural drawl of uneducated night shift shepherds. Who would choose to entrust their entire life's work? A redemption story they've been weaving for generations to someone completely unproven and unqualified. God would, and God does. You see, this story, it's it's more than just warm fuzzies and sanitized church services. It is a social scandal, an upside down kind of story that we either marvel at or are offended by, but nothing in between. A few years ago on this very night I was living in New York City. I was on my way to the Christmas Eve service at the church that I was pastoring at the time and I was running late. I'm always running late. (laughs) But tonight my subway stop was out of service so I called an Uber. Nine minutes away? Nine minutes! So there I am standing on the street corner cold, annoyed and stressed out about being the last person to arrive at the service I'm preaching at. And I see across the street, a houseless man passed out in the middle of the sidewalk with an open container sitting next to him at four o'clock in the afternoon. And suddenly it hit me that I'm going to a Christmas Eve service to stand surrounded by friends and light candles to celebrate the God who's come into the world. And afterwards, I'm going to pick up a pizza, head back home and watch Home Alone with my wife and children. And then I'm going to wake up the following morning and give gifts to my kids and then fly to be with other loved ones who always love us no matter what. My life is so rich. And something has gone so horribly wrong in this man's life that he has gotten blacked out intoxicated in the middle of the afternoon on Christmas Eve. I am beholding a human tragedy. And I began to wonder, how would Jesus respond to this man in this moment? And I knew Jesus would cross the street, get down on his knees, wake this man up and make sure he's okay. He'd buy him a cup of coffee and a bite to eat to sober up. He'd bring him along in that nine minute late Uber, arriving late to the very service that he's preaching at because this man laying on the street is every bit as important as the ones who are waiting in the pews. He would take him to church, Jesus, the preacher at the big Christmas Eve celebration, arriving with the addicted and the forgotten. And then afterwards, he'd bring him back to his apartment. He would share his pizza. He'd let him stick around for home alone. He would take on whatever inconveniences that brought into his life like a privilege because he was broken for the broken. And it would be a whole lot more awkward than it would be amazing. It would probably result in more of a headache than it would a good story. And he would count it all joy because the way he arrived was only indicative of the way he would go on to live. So I was standing there across the street marveling at Jesus. And also aware of the very wide gap between who he is and who I am. The very wide gap between who I am and who I really, really want to be. You see, the trouble with sin is that it gets in the way of love. So Jesus comes to expose a love that's more powerful than my selfishness, my brokenness, my incompleteness, and my preoccupation with my comfort. And he shows us that love in the cast of the narrators he chose for his arrival. The staggering scandal of the birth of God is the greatest and most cosmic story, narrows and narrows and narrows until it comes to this tiny sharpened point. A teenage girl of the peasant class of a small family growing up in a rural town and a couple of blue collar workers punching the clock, making their way through another night shift. And if that's how God arrived, then it sends ripples through the world like a rock thrown into a calm pond. Uh, ripples that run over cheap means of worth like wealth and success and status, those identities that we never tire of wearing but who destroy those who wear them and all those who wish they could. Cheap means of worth overwhelmed by love. God is love. A love powerful enough to rewrite the social order but a love also personal enough to receive individually. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherd said to them, but Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds are euphoric. They're telling their story to anyone who will listen. Mary is reflective, not saying a single word. Mary pondered. Now, scholars tell us that in the original Greek, this word most literally means to put into context or to connect So Mary's gazing at this newborn infant, at her newborn infant, and as she does, she's putting this little child's life and her own life into proper context. Isaiah chapter 7 famously says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. That is undoubtedly a prophecy that Mary would have grown up memorizing. It's a passage that would have been read again and again in the temple of her youth, a promise that she recited and sung and heard the priests preach on in their robes. Only tonight she's gazing at this little child and she's putting her own story in the context of the biggest story. She is connecting the dots from the origins of the world to the God who would make promises to people, to the prophets who carried those promises in dark times to me. You see, the shepherds keeping watch over their flocks at night, they are marveling at a God who would love the world this much. But Mary, looking at this infant, is marveling at the God who would love her this much, who would push, pursue her this fervently, who would enter in not just to the mess of our story, but the mess of her story. For Mary first, and then all, for all of us who dare to take the news of Advent seriously, God is love, not just socially, but personally. And Isaiah's prophecy, it continues to a less famous, but coming line, which says, for before this boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. You see, in context, Isaiah is saying what you're worried about, what you're anxious over, what you're fearful of today, by the time this one I'm telling you about named Emmanuel arrives, those anxieties, dreads, and fears will be long gone. Not because you'll no longer be anxious, but because today's worries will just be replaced by new ones. In other words, says Isaiah, if you want to get in on the biggest story, if you want to perceive the activity of God in in your midst, you've got to look up from the mess of your own life, from the circumstances that you're anxious about. You've got to look beyond those things. You've got to ponder. What are you worried about? What are you fearful of? What are you anxious over? What burden are you carrying? What failure are you wallowing in as it replays in your mind like an unflattering highlight reel? Because there's a kind of life that outlives worry. And there's a yoke that's easier than your burden. There's a love that overwhelms fear. There's a kind of victory that washes over the stains of your failure, making you without blemish, white as snow. And his name is Emmanuel. God with us. So can you see your circumstances tonight in light of that story? Can you connect the dots? Can you put your little story into proper context? Do you dare to ponder? The Swiss philosopher Alain de Botton, he says, we are all crazy in some way. The crucial question is, what are the ways you are crazy? What are the parts of your life that have been blocked by fear? How exactly do you self-destruct? In what ways have you not been loved? See, the trouble with sin is that it gets in the way of love. The love we give, sure, but the love we receive even more profoundly. God stripped himself of all but love because it's love and love only that's powerful enough to heal me. Do not fear, the angels sang out, because because a love more powerful than fear has come to live among you tonight. And reflecting on the magnificence of all of that, Mary said, the mighty one has done great things for me. Well, for me? I thought the arrival of God was about all of us. Is this just some hyper-narcissistic take on the most grand story? No. It's sober-minded, honest awareness that love is always personal, regardless of how far-reaching it is. So what if the promises of God became that personal for you? And you realized, I am the one that He will never leave or forsake. I am the the possessor of the kind of peace that surpasses understanding. I am the clay jar that is filled with resurrection power. I am the child that he loves to give good gifts to. I am standing before him now, clean, pure, and without blemish. I am the one that he lavishes his love on. I'm drenched in it even now tonight. I am so important to him that he is picking up the shattered pieces of my story up to this point and weaving them into the most beautiful Tapestry called redemption. What if God's promises got that personal? What if you discovered yourself in the story that He is telling? For no word from God will ever fail. Ever. That's true for you. And that's what it means that God is love. So we'll end where we started. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. Is that a fable? A sentimental escape from the reality of this world? Or is it news? An event so catastrophic that it redefines the reality of this world and my life within it? Because if it's a fable, then it's a sentiment that warms the secular world's favorite holiday. If it's a fable, I hope I've retold it for you tonight in a way that makes the cookies left out for Santa a little less stale, and the family dinner a little bit less awkward, and the gifts you exchange tomorrow a little bit less returned. But if it's news, then it's love. And the closer you get to this love, the more powerful it becomes. Powerful enough to heal the wounds of our fragile world and powerful enough even to heal the wounds of your fragile soul. If it's news, then it's worth pondering. It's worth putting into context. It's worth connecting the dots. It's worth receiving. And we tend to live most deeply, not from our best intentions or our logical reasoning, but for better and for worse, we tend to live most deeply from the stories that get their talons into us. Stories like the wounds left in you by your father or your ex-spouse or the failure that you can't seem to outrun for worse. But then also for better, like the way that you felt during the first dance at your wedding or the way you felt when you held your first child or the way you felt when you were forgiven, really forgiven in a way that you could receive. You see, there's certain stories that get their talons into you, that cut you open just enough not to hurt you, but to heal you. And I wonder tonight if this story, not a fable, but a news story, might be getting its talons into you. And if it is, then I just would want to say to you that this Savior who's been born to you, he's too good to hold it together. He's too good to grit your teeth and let the moment pass. He is too good to put off for another day.